do you support Liz Truss's claims that workers outside London need to graft more? Liz Truss has very little plan on it, that's the problem. She's saying she's going to unveil it next week, next week, next week, and we still don't have anything. All we have is this major tax plan that's kind of targeted at 100,000 Tory members to win an election. Well, we haven't continued on the the NHS, and in fact, I went and looked at this the other day, our spending on health as a percentage of GDP is actually near the top. With the exception of Boris Johnson recommending purchase the new kettles, what has the government actually done in the last couple of months to really deal with the cost of living crisis? A lot of people will be frustrated with hearing a Eton-educated Oxford MP talking about benefits culture. Everybody, welcome back to Politics Relax. It's been a bit of a while, but we're back with a very exciting interview. Joining us, Bim Athelami, Conservative MP for Hitchin Harpenton. Enjoy it. As you probably know, that as of today, criminal strike indefinitely due to kind of low wages and the lack of availability of legal aid for a lot of people in the country. How does the government expect to tackle the Crown Court backlog of 58,000 cases when its lawyers are on an indefinite walkout? I mean, it's it's going to be a difficult issue. The, the, there are a couple parts to this problem. The first is that the backlogs are, you've got police backlogs with arrests, you've got prison availability in places, you've got courts getting through the, the, the system fast enough. COVID was a big, big problem. Um, but one thing that during COVID we found was that using technology can really speed things up. So what I, what I think we're basically going to have to do is use technology more and more, do it a lot faster and more effectively. We obviously have to resolve the issue with, with um, criminal barristers. I think they have in the broadest terms have had a bad deal, but we've got to do that in a way that's fair to taxpayers. Uh, it's not easy, um, but it strikes me that, that the solutions are quite clear. You need to have more prison places if, we're, if, if we can't get people through. Uh, we need to increase the speed at which police can catch people, process them through the system. And obviously we need the barristers to be there. It's, it's, it's important not to see this as a one part problem. That it's, it's sort of got multi, multi bits to it. Yeah, so would you support what the criminal barristers are asking for? So Dominic, rather, the original offer was 15% increase on fees. Would you support what they're asking for, which is a 25% offer um, to increase on fees? The truth is, it's, it's, it's like quite an arbitrary number. Right? Like, I don't know, because in order to assess that, you have to work out um, what are the costs, what's fair. I mean, these are, 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 are just judgment calls, and I'm not close to it. But what I do know... Yeah is that dealing with the criminal barristers in and of themselves is not going to solve the problem. We have to do a bunch of different things. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously, today is the, the big day. Um, ask, kind of, you, you worked for under Liz Truss's uh, PPS, I believe. Yeah. Um, why are you backing Rishi Sunak to become uh, Prime Minister instead of... Well, I've worked, I've worked, very, I've worked very closely with both. Uh, I've worked with Rishi in lots of different ways as well. And look, I yeah. thought that he was, um, you know, the best candidate. But there were lots of good candidates. You know, I think, you know, Tom Tugendhat's an excellent guy who I know very well. Um, you could have easily asked me why I didn't support Tom. You know, there, there are, there were lots of good candidates. Um, ultimately, and by the time this goes out, the decision would have been sort of yeah. announced. Ultimately, uh, what unites the candidates and the parties a lot more than what divides them. I think the truth is, is that leadership contests always bring out the worst in parties because people make very, they're very small differences between people that get magnified. And therefore, I'm actually quite hopeful 
that once once all is said and done, people will be able to come together and work together, just like in the past with so many instances. Uh, I mean, I'll give you a very good example. When Margaret Thatcher took over as leader, um, every single member of the Shadow Cabinet had voted for Ted Heath. And yet she inherited largely the same Shadow Cabinet. She continued, and most of those people were in her full Cabinet in government until the mid-80s at least. So, you know, I think we just we just um, come together. What I will say to you about Liz knowing her is that she's very, very hardworking. She, you know, which uh, an appetite for detail, which I don't think uh, even his best friends would say Boris Johnson had. Um, and she's got a very clear vision and lodestar. Uh, Rishi is incredibly capable, um, very, very strong on economic issues. Uh, understands policy in a, in a in a way that both in a macro and micro way really really well, um, and so these are sort of to some degree complementary skills. So I'm just hoping that you know they find way of working together in the future. Whoever wins, it's um, it's obviously really important look the future. But in the last couple of months, obviously Keir Starmer's Labour proposed to freeze the price cap as a result of a windfall tax. Ed Davey and Gordon Brown have both called to recall Parliament, and with the exception of Boris Johnson recommending purchase of new kettles. What has the government actually done in the last couple of months to really deal with the cost of living crisis? So the issue on new kettles was, was completely taken out of context. And look, I resigned from my position as a vice chair with Boris Johnson. I'm not some sort of blind loyalist, but I, that was really taken out of context. Um, in relation to the broader point around what has the government um, done on cost of living? Well, the truth is, is that we had a package that when Rishi was chancellor put together, that's actually playing through right now in terms of... Um, uh, reductions in people's council tax and, and various other things, but for the, the most, uh, and obviously we've been having a leadership contest uh, in, in relation. So, so the Prime Minister and Boris Johnson couldn't make big decisions. I mean, that's the point uh, of leadership contest. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the sort of opposition proposals to do X or Y or to recall Parliament, these are sort of. Um, things that opposition say, right? I'm not blaming them, it's sort of thing oppositions do. Yeah. Uh, the job, as we get into the autumn, don't forget, you know, the summer, people use a lot less energy. Uh, as we get into the autumn, we're in the position now of this is the right time to make these decisions. And I'm pretty sure within the next couple of weeks, we'll have a, we'll have a full picture. Do you, I, I suppose I'll just follow up and say, do you think it's right that the Conservatives have had this leadership race that's gone yeah. on for months and months and months. I mean, obviously, Boris Johnson had to go, but do you think the length of time that the leadership race went on and just kind of the way it looked for the public was right? Because a lot of people have been very frustrated that it seems like yeah. not much has happened. Um, I mean, it really depends how you look at it. So imagine a world where... The MPs, we had just passed a rule in the 1922 that just said the MPs are going to take this decision, right? And so at the end of two weeks, we have a new prime minister. Just imagine that world for a second, which is not inconceivable at all. Now, in that scenario, I can imagine you or somebody else asking me, gosh, do you think it's, do you think it's right that the decision on who the prime minister is is made within two weeks in a back row in Westminster, right? Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that that is correct or not. What I'm saying is there is no easy way to do these things. Yeah. The way we've got, it was happening over a period of time where there was comparatively less politics than, than, than normal. It's time when most people, you know, 
are not that focused on politics. The party's trying to choose it. We're involving all of our members in the process. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, for people yeah. who are frustrated that they say, oh, look, I'm a Conservative, I'm not a member. Well, my answer is join. Uh, and um, for the public at large, you know, parties have always had their processes and ways of choosing people, whether it be MPs, whether it be leaders. Um, this is our process. Labour have their own. And the public gets a say, obviously, at general elections and and in sort of in between general elections, do routine, you know, whether it be local elections, by-elections, um, press, uh, general popular feeling or not. So it, it, there is no easy way to do it. I think this is as good a way as any. Um, and, you know, I think that had we done it a much faster way, you would have had the opposite criticism. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, as you might be able to tell by the accent, um, I live in the northeast, and with record child poverty really? and the lowest GDP in history of my ben region. Ben Hatchin and Simon Clark always banging on to me about the northeast and how great it is. It's fantastic, honestly. Um, I, sorry from the northeast, and with record child poverty and with the lowest GSE pass rate by region, I don't really see how after 12 years the Tories have truly levelled up. So how have the government has have the government done enough as a whole to make sure that the northeast is just as good to live in as, say, London and your constituency in Hitchin and Harbinton? I mean, the truth is that you can never do enough, right? There's never enough. Things are never finished. Nothing's ever done. And obviously, when it comes to this, um, the points you make are pretty stark. Uh, and there's no point pretending that the Northeast has had a better 12 years than the Southeast, for example. But the question is this what are the core reasons why there's some regions of the country that are less productive than others? It's deeply, deeply complicated. And I'm afraid not all of it is down to government action or indeed inaction. Uh, my view is there are a couple of things that we didn't do in the early part of our time in government that we're starting to do or we should do more. The first is on sort of devolution and giving more power to local people um, and local, you know, local um, political entities to drive improvements in their own region. We really only got this going after a few years, right? So. So if you think, you know, Ben Hampton's been in post um, only a few years now, I think he's in his fifth or sixth year, for example, um, and he's already making, starting to make a real difference uh, in Teesside. I pick him as one example, but so I think that devolution is something we got right, because if you want to improve a local area, the best people know how to do that are local people. But my criticism about the way how the devolution settlement has evolved over time is that we haven't had enough of a focus on the economics of it. We focused on the politics of it, who makes the decision over X, Y, and Z, but we really now got to drive through how do you economically give the levers to local people, not just the political levers? Because separating out those two things, you know, principally, if all the economic decisions are made here, but some of the political decisions are made here and some are made here, it doesn't necessarily deal with the economic problem locally. So I think we've got to be a bit braver around economic decisions for local areas, right? I think that's one thing. Second thing, is we've also got to accept that different regions have different strengths and different weaknesses. And the southeast of England connected with London is always going to be, has been for centuries, the richest you know, per head part of the United Kingdom. It would be wrong to suggest that any government policy would be able to change that um, because you know, these things are cultural, historical for a very long period of time. The question, however, is, and by the way, that's offset by incredibly high housing costs in London and the Southeast, which once you actually yeah. look, once you actually look at 
earnings and you factor in housing costs, the gaps can actually be a lot less than, than it looks like on paper. So we've got to accept that culture and history. We've got to build up the, the strengths of other parts of the country and make sure that those strengths start to get to recognise get recognized internationally as well as within our own country. Because once you do that, you can end up with a much more sort of what the economists call polycentric. So sort of a, a model of growth that isn't dependent on London, it's dependent on every region has its own major city and then they all have hubs and spokes from it. So that's sort of the, the, the country we want to see. That's the one I want to see. We're not there yet, but don't stop us from trying. In the um, 1980s, Margaret Thatcher made a massive decision, right, to, in what some people in the North East still haven't forgiven the Conservative government for, which was to decimate the trade industry in the North East by closing the mines and etc. That's why we're very much a working class region. But uh, we won't ask about that because obviously it's 40 years ago. Do you support Liz Truss's claims that workers outside London need to graft more in order to level up truly? I don't think she quite said that. I think that what I do agree with is the idea that a lot of economic growth, and going back to my point about levelling up, it's not just about government policy, right? Like over the last probably 30 years, we've come to see every problem as through the prism of the government fixing it. And there are a lot of things governments can do, but a lot of things governments can't do, or at least can't do very easily. And I think that the culture of how all of us approach our work and the nature of the economy um, is really, really important. One, give me, let me give you an example. The culture of lots of different people who um, are currently on benefit rather than being in work when there are job vacancies in their area, I think that that is not just a government policy issue. That, to some degree may well be a cultural issue. There are some um, people on the flip side who are relatively successful, who get to a particular age and they can retire, even if they're able and willing to work. I think we should also be saying, how is it that government can help encourage those people to not just sit on their retirement income, but to go out, start a new business, mentor young people, do various other things to help their local community. So, so I think you get it in lots of different ways, but culture, is an important part of growing our economy and making sure that we once again are the envy of the world in terms of our economy. I suppose I just know a lot of people will be frustrated with hearing a Eton educated Oxford MP talking about benefits culture when there is obviously massive inequalities in the system in this country that need to be worked on rather than blaming benefits culture. Obviously that, that might exist but there's a much bigger problem that I think government needs to address. And I think that's the big issue that people want with levelling up. Yeah, I, I didn't say um, culture was the biggest issue. I just said it was one of them. And I was asked the question about drafting. Sure. So I, it wasn't, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't spontaneously come up at that point. Yeah. Uh, what, what, I, what I did say, I don't think it is the biggest problem. What, but, but look, the thing about inequalities is we need to be really honest about them. Not every single inequality of whatever type is illegitimate. What we have to do is we have to make sure we live in a country and build a country where it is as legitimate to do a manual job having not gone for university and be able to earn a decent wage if you work hard to somebody who has gone to university 
and done a humanities degree and works in a service industry where the salaries are broadly speaking a bit higher, um, not always at all, but they can be a bit higher, or even if they're not higher, the sort of social capital that people feel when they take from doing a certain job rather than another one is different. For me, the mark of a good society is not to say, does, you know, is there inequality between the dustman and the duck and the Jew? Because we know that that's going to be the case. But the dustman needs to be able to be able to afford with on the basis of working hard and doing the right things, have a decent life. That's the point. And um, and I brought in some some slightly cultural points there again about education and work, but we, we have just got to crack this problem of thinking that there are certain jobs that are better than yeah. other jobs, um, notwithstanding the economic opportunity, notwithstanding how entrepreneurial you are, notwithstanding how well you can go about your life, but because of some sort of intrinsic feel we have for certain things being better than other things. And I think we have to change that. Yeah. I've, I've got a question that I think I need to ask. Uh, you're a strong advocate for mental health. And as a young person, I, I'm concerned with the state of the NHS. It faces significant challenges, huge waiting lists, a workforce crisis and health inequalities. Um, of course, the pandemic has played a part in these issues, but they're, they're pretty underlying as well. Uh, why do you think the Conservatives have continually underfunded the NHS and let it get to the dire state that it's in? Well, we haven't continually underfunded the NHS. And in fact, I went and looked at this the other day. Our spending on health as a percentage of GDP is actually near the top. I think the problems are that we haven't been brave enough um, over the last few years to really deal with some of the structural problems of the NHS. We need to be a lot braver at dealing with those. But the difficulty is, uh, to be very frank, that when one does look at structural issues, in the short term, things can look messy or even messier. And you get attacked from the left saying things like, oh, you're privatizing the NHS. Not that anybody's ever been able to describe to me exactly what that would mean. Um, and so as conservative politicians, I think we're very wary of doing major structural changes because um, we fear what, what, what lies will be thrown at us about the, our sort of aims and, and motives behind what we're doing. I know that's, you know, um, and I'm not saying we won't do it. I really hope that over the next couple of years, and I think the public has got to the point where it knows that we need to make some bigger, more fundamental changes to our health service. Um, but I'm just outlining the political difficulty. In relation to mental health, it's my view that one of the problems is there is a difference between mental health and mental well-being. You know, mental health, uh, we should think of as a clinical problem to some degree. And mental well-being is sort of like a, it's something that everybody needs to be mindful of, but it, we don't have to medicalize it. Um, and making sure that we can distinguish and the individuals and the system can distinguish between somebody who needs to work on their general well-being going through the day and going through the week and month, and somebody who has a clinical problem, uh, and making sure that when you're dealing with a clin clinical problem, we obviously have the right support in place, but in terms of the mental well-being, a lot of it is we need to make sure that we build up everybody, not just young people, by the way, but older people as well, um, their mental resilience to deal a bit better with the knocks of modern life that are different from the knocks of 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, social media being one very, very good example. When I was at school, social media did not exist. There was no concept of it. We couldn't even imagine what that world would have been like, even into my 20s. I'm 36 now. 
Um, so I think the pressure of that on young people is just something that is really so different to what has come before that there's no surprise that the mental health of young people has suffered. But the trick is to try and make sure that we can improve everybody's mental well-being so that we don't get as many people getting into that really acute, difficult, medicalized point of when you have severe mental health problems. And I think that those two things need to be held separate, though obviously they are connected. I just want to um, ask you a really quick fire yes or no question because we haven't really got much longer. Would you support ban and conversion therapy for all members of the LGBTQ community? And obviously here I'm alluding to trans people here. It's a massive call from people. It needs to happen for a lot of people because it, it does allude to the mental health point of view. This is a really difficult issue for so many people and conversion therapy is not the way to solve it. it the, the, the reason why I can't give you a yes or no is that it really depends how you define conversion therapy. And that is a huge area of debate um, that um, has been uh, that is really, really difficult. So just really exactly how you define that conversion therapy as to whether you can ban it or not. Yeah, um, I'm gonna ask a, uh, wait, I've lost my question. Give me one second, there we go. Um, I'm gonna ask a question on uh, food banks um, because obviously more and more people are relying on food banks. Um, users have increased from 40,000 in 2010 to 2.17 million in 2022. Um, the figure is again obviously expected to rise with all the problems we're going to have this winter. Uh, since um, this rise has occurred under a Conservative government of the last five to ten years, uh, do you think the government has done enough to deal with the growing poverty in our country? Um, on food banks, the difficulty when I look at the evidence on this is that food, I buying food in the shop, is Food now is cheaper in real terms than it has pretty much ever been, okay? Um, or at least until the inflation spike of the last few months or so. Cheaper than, than it has ever been. Not just in real terms, by the way, but also as a percentage of what the poorest people spend their money on, right? So if you actually look at, at food now, that is just how things have been. I accept, by the way, that there are many other things that are much more expensive than they have ever been. Housing being a very good example, even for people, you know, at the poorest end, housing is um, in large parts of the country much less affordable than it was, say, a generation ago. So I'm not, I, I know that if food goes down, something else can go up by more. So it's, it's hard to see um, if we're going to make food much cheaper. Um, particularly if we want to maintain good environmental standards, by the way, which which make them more make it more expensive compared to um, sort of more chemically intensive methods. And in, but the broader question about poverty is really tricky because universal credit, I strongly supported um, during you know the pandemic the increase in universal credit. I thought that we should have left that increase in. I thought it would have been easier um, and had that debate internally. But anyway, we are where we are. Um, but as a system, I remember Labour politicians saying this was going to destroy people's welfare, destroy the welfare system. And it's actually been proved to be a very good system because you earn more. You're always better off when you're in work. And that's a really good principle. What we have to now do is too many of our jobs are still lower paying structurally. We need to increase 
the salaries of those jobs. We need to make that when people are moving from universal credit, they're not just earning a little bit more, they're earning a lot more. And if we can do that and go for a more higher wage economy, that does fundamentally improve people's earning power. And by the way, we should tax people as, as little as we possibly can. Um, and I think that Liz Trust, for what it's worth, has been incredibly strong and good on this point, um, on tax. If we can do that, then food will become more affordable and we will be able to deal with this problem. But I'm not saying it's yeah, I, uh, I mean, that leads me nicely on to kind of the final question. Assuming Liz Truss does win the leadership contest, obviously it's probably be edited out if, it, if she doesn't. Uh, with over 10% of households in Hitchin and Harpenden in fuel poverty last year, and with that number expected to rise and rise across the country, are you concerned with her tax plans that it's going to do very little to help those with struggling energy bills on the lowest income? I don't know if you watched. No, no, it's really, but look, this is such an important point. Yeah. yeah. It's really, really, I think the media has been, frankly, pretty, um, hasn't covered this very well. Let me explain why. You can't focus on one aspect of an economic package and say, well, that aspect doesn't benefit this group of people as much as this group of people. Because obviously, everything you pick will benefit some people more than others. The point is, what is the overall impact of what you are doing? And I think that that test is what is going to be seen. If, if, of course, you just do one thing and that one thing benefits this person way more, these people way more than these people, then obviously then you can be open to criticism. What you can't do is just take that one thing, because I know that we're going to have a range of different interventions across a whole range of different areas, and overall is the importance of this package. This, this is the most important issue we're facing currently. Liz Truss has very little plan on it. That's the problem. She's saying she's going to unveil it next week, next week, next week. And we still don't have anything. All we have is this major tax plan that's kind of targeted at 100,000 Tory members to win an election instead of targeting people that are going to be in fuel poverty this winter. She should have a clear plan. She's going, obviously, she doesn't have the full finances. That's fair enough. But she still should have some ideas of what she's going to do. And yet we know very little apart from this tax plan, which is only going to benefit those on higher income. Uh, let's wait and see. I think in a couple of weeks' time, a lot is going to be clearer. And we're at the right point. You, you can't unveil a full plan before you are, before you're in post. You can't do that. Nobody would do that. So you've just got to wait. It's not going to be very long. And as I say, we're still in, you know, late summer, early autumn. There is a bit of time to set, not a lot of time, but a bit of time to, to, to set out what it is we're going to do. And obviously, if, um, if, if, uh, if, if Liz wins and she's unveils that plan and, and people think that plan is inadequate, then that's obviously, that can be criticised at that point. But, but I think you can't really do that until we see the full picture and we're going to have that in the next week or two. Sure. All right, I mean, we've got to wrap it up there. Thank you very much uh, for your time. No problem, guys. Really appreciate Thank it. you. Really Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. See you later. Thank you.